Please remain standing as we hear from God's Word. This passage is on page 950 of the Bibles next to you, 950, from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after everything you have done, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It is really good uh, to see you this morning. We're so glad you're here. I wanted to begin by just saying a, a really deep thank you uh, to everybody who has uh, just helped support the family and, and friends uh, of our, our dear friend Ben Anderson, who went uh, to be with the Lord last week. Um, I want to say a, a deep thank you for all those who have been supporting Julie and the family. Uh, thank you to those who have supported uh, us as, as pastors and, and staff and our families. And thank you in advance to all who will support and will uh, continue to lend your uh, strength uh, to this wonderful family in the weeks and months to come. It's both a difficult and uh, a beautiful season right now. Uh, we're holding together some, some deep grief as well as some, some real celebration. Uh, we're, we're holding death and new life in tension. And this is nothing new to the people of God. When you think about the Old Testament, when Israel was, was wandering in the wilderness or they were in exile in foreign nations, they were being mistreated and oppressed and beat down, and yet they continued to seek the face of the Lord, to study their scriptures, to, to come together to do their, their festivals and, and celebrations as a people. Think about the early church as well, as they were, were hard-pressed and, and, and overwhelmed with persecution, suffering all around them, and they continued to gather and to support one another, to pray together, to search the scriptures, to sing out to God, to fulfill the Great Commission. And we're doing that as well today. We're actually baptizing a couple of young bros, and I can... <laughs> I can call them bros because these are some bros. I don't know if I can say that. Even bros are like, those are some bros. Dude, it's so incredible. I mean, imagine a couple of 18-year-olds coming to Mizzou, getting involved in a fraternity, and finding Christ. And then the rest of their lives, they are men of God walking with Christ, witnesses to His grace. It's unbelievable. You can't make it up. And so we're, we're continuing in this series on the Holy Spirit. This is week 13, believe it or not. Uh, way to go. You've made it 
pretty far. We're, we're finishing next week. Uh, how many of you, this is the first 13th sermon you've heard on the Holy Spirit? Like, is, is that all of us the first time we've done, like, minimum 13 weeks on the Holy Spirit? You guys have done awesome, and I'm so thankful for you. Uh, what we're looking at this, this penultimate week, I mean, second to last, we're looking at, at spiritual warfare. And so this morning, we're going to look at three things, the enemy and his schemes, the victory that Christ has achieved, and then our response. How do we, how do we engage in spiritual warfare ourselves? All right? So let me pray, and we'll get into Ephesians 6. Um, Father, you are such a good God. Uh, we, we don't always feel it with the fullness of our being, and we often have questions and doubts, and yet other times there is a, a sort of, uh, like a tear in the lampshade and, and the light comes, comes forth and our, our doubts and our, our fears are cast out for a moment and, and we can see clearly just how good and how great you are. And so Lord, we thank you for those moments. We pray that you would, would give us that even now. We pray that you would, would strengthen us as we serve increase in us as we celebrate, hold us as we grieve. This morning, Holy Spirit, would you give us clarity into your word and into the spiritual battle that we're, we're in. Open our eyes to your word that we might live fully and wisely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the, the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." And so the first thing I want to look at is simply who, who is our enemy? Who is this enemy that is often described in the New Testament? Because from really from Genesis to Revelation, we see that we as the people of God, as Christians, have a very real, very personal enemy. He's called Satan. He's called the deceiver. He's, he's the liar. He's the adversary. He's the murderer. He's the tempter. And he is not just this impersonal force or, or representation of evil, but he is an actual person. And he commands a, a legion of evil spirits called demons. Now, Satan and his, his demons, they are our primary enemy. In fact, they're our only enemy. Because Jesus told us if there's anybody we consider an enemy on earth, whoever they are, they're not really our enemy. We are to love them. Our one and only enemy is Satan and all of his followers, these demons. However, there is a, a study done by Barna, and this was some years ago, but it, it showed that 59% of all Christians believe that the devil is not a personal being, but is an impersonal force and, and quote, a representation of evil. And so as Christians, we often struggle to believe in a, in a real and personal demon and, and we're often taught throughout our lives, and, and this sometimes happens in the church without us even realizing it, that evil is simply an, an impersonal force. 
It's, it's just the result of, of like a lack of education or, or bad policies or, or we just haven't figured out something yet. But once we, once we do, once we have a better process and plan for all these things, then evil will be eradicated from the world. And biblically, we know that nothing could be further from the truth. And perhaps this is exactly what the devil wants us to think. There was a scholar at Columbia University, just a secular person, Andrew Delbanco, and he wrote a book called The Death of Satan, where he actually traces how Western people have lost their, their belief in a literal Satan and how that's changed the way people view evil in general. And so he says there's a gulf that has opened up between our, in our culture between the visibility of evil, so think of the, the horrible things that happen in, in the world, and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Like we simply don't have a way of explaining the worst things that happen in our world. And he argues that because we have this impersonal view of evil, there's little hope to actually explain the concept of true evil and, and to respond to it in our time. And even as Christians, I think, as I've said, we, we struggle to fully realize the, the reality of the devil and the pervasiveness of spiritual opposition against us. I think there's a few reasons for this. Maybe we haven't really studied or, or taken seriously all of the scriptures around spiritual warfare. Maybe we're afraid that any kind of focus on the demonic will like open us up to more spiritual attack. Or it could be that our lifestyles are so insulated and comfortable that we're simply not targets for spiritual attack. And so rejecting a, a literal devil or, or minimizing the place of spiritual warfare, it doesn't exempt us from being attacked by the enemy. It just makes us less able to stand against his schemes. And that's exactly what Paul tells us to do. In verses 10 and on, he says, take your stand against the devil and all of his schemes. And then verse 12 describes three different forms that the enemy takes. He says there are demonic rulers and authorities. That's the first category. The New Testament uses all of these words to describe really classes or categories of demonic activity. Principalities, authorities, powers, dominions, thrones, world rulers, and it suggests that there is a real structured and coordinated type of organization to this, this invisible evil empire of the enemy. And so the first form is these demonic rulers and authorities. The second Paul mentions is evil powers of this dark world. In Ephesians 2, it calls, uh, Paul calls the devil the ruler of the kingdom of the air meaning that his influence in the world is as pervasive as air is. He stands behind and beneath so many things that, that we know are evil, but we don't fully understand what the source of them is. Behind the lies of individuals and ideologies, there's a deceiver that's at work. Behind the violence done by criminals, there's a murderer at work. Behind the forces of racism and oppression, there's an adversary at work. Behind the appeals of power and control and, and certainly things like pornography, there's a tempter at work. So there's evil powers of this dark world. And then the third category is evil forces in the heavenly realms. And this phrase is, is one that Paul uses throughout Ephesians, the heavenly realms. And it means to show us that, that what we can see and touch 
and, and feel this, this world that we're constantly in, it's not all that there is. There is also this invisible, out of our minds normally, reality that we are just as much a part of. And this is where there is this, this constant battle in the spiritual heavenly realms. And so this means that you have a non-physical enemy trying to attack you and a non-physical defender coming to your defense like all the time. And we, we rarely even begin to realize when this is happening. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or as our passage says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And so what are, what are the schemes of the enemy? What are the things that he's constantly trying to do to us? I want to I give just a few. And the first is, is planting sinful thoughts and motivations in our minds. Acts 5 says that the, the devil can plant these sinful plans and purposes in, in the minds of either believer, believers or non-believers. And the enemy can't read our thoughts, but he can, he can study our lives and find the weak places where he can attack. I don't know if you've ever just, just had a, a sudden thought come in, a, a sort of an impulsive or an attacking or an accusing thought that you, you know, most of your thoughts, you can kind of trace them back to previous thoughts, but like the ones that just come out of nowhere and attack you. I think more than likely these are coming from our enemy especially when they're accusing us, especially when they're trying to make us feel more alone, more isolated, more unloved, more rejected. And even if it's hard to know whether a thought that's come into our minds is from us or from the enemy, the, the way that we respond to it is actually the same. It's simply to turn to Jesus. Seek what is, what is potentially sinful in our lives and ask for forgiveness, but then live in that forgiveness as well. What I've experienced is often receiving like an accusing kind of thought that comes rushing into my mind. And then as soon as I have that thought, there's a second thought that comes in that's the guilt and shame. Like, how could you think that? I hope you've experienced that, but that's the work of the enemy. He wants to plant something terrible in your mind and then make you feel terrible about the thing that he planted in your mind. Now, the second thing is, is luring people into traps. Is another one of the schemes of the enemy. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul warns of falling into the traps of the devil, and he mentions money and sex and power and false beliefs. In 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about demons promoting idolatry and, and receiving the worship of, of non-Christian religions. In 2 Corinthians, he says that demonic influence exists over non-Christian ideologies. He says every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And so there are, there are systems of thought that reject Christ as Lord that are actually demonic in their source. And this is, this is some of the, the subtle work of the enemy. I mean, really, the enemy's most effective work is, is very, very hidden and subtle. I've quoted before the opening line of the movie, The Usual Suspects. It says, the greatest trick the devil, devil ever pulled was believing the world or convincing the world that he didn't exist. I think that's right. If he can convince us that he doesn't even exist and make us feel crazy for thinking that something might have some kind of demonic source, then he's got a huge edge over us. Another scheme of the enemy is attacking at our moments of weakness and opportunity. I don't know if you've noticed that there are certain times when like all hell breaks loose. 
And I think that's actually what's happening. Like if it's a moment of weakness, say you're, you're trying to get to church on Sunday, all hell breaks loose, right? You're, you're maybe going on a, a vacation with your spouse to reconnect. Nope, all hell breaks loose. You're thinking about sharing the gospel with your friend. Boom, all hell breaks loose. Almost anything you do that's, that's either an opportunity or a transition or a moment of weakness, you can expect that the enemy will meet you there. Now, the last one I want to mention, the last scheme of the enemy is undermining health and growth in the church. In Luke 22, we see Satan test Peter's loyalty to Jesus, although only to the extent that God allows it. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul states that Satan has a strategic design to to undermine the health of local congregations. And then in chapter 4, he says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, limiting the spread of the gospel. When he is constantly at work against the church and especially against its spread. And so for us, as, as a young, growing congregation, especially one that's seeing people baptize and come to Christ, growing in the faith, we should absolutely expect spiritual opposition. Over the past couple of years, we have, we have really grown. It's sort of all come together for us as a church. We've experienced more baptisms than we did in the first three years. We've seen a lot more spiritual growth and, and vibrancy in people than we did in the first couple of years. Church growth, for sure, attendance has taken off the last couple of years. And 100% spiritual warfare has taken off as well. I mean, almost anything you could imagine, and it's all basically in the New Testament, but, but struggles within our leadership or, or attacks from inside or outside, leaders struggling with nightmares and insomnia. It seems like whenever we have a season of transition or growth as a church, we literally can see it in the nightmares of our own children. We've seen direct demonic activity at a few points and been able to pray to cast out evil spirits. But God has protected us. He has defended us. I mean, it's been, a, it's been a huge increase these last couple years, and yet God has defeated every single attempt. Now, that's, that's all the first thing. I know that's a lot. It's a lot to take in. All of these schemes of the enemy. But here's the second thing. It's the victory that Christ achieved. Too often we can go right from what are the schemes of the enemy to how do we respond? And we're literally missing the most important thing, which is that a victory has already been secured. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Sam Storms, the author, writes, the key to victory in spiritual warfare is in knowing both what Jesus has done for you and what he has done to Satan. Christians too often live in fear of what they think the evil of what the devil might do but can't, and in ignorance of what they themselves can do but don't. In other words, the authority that we have in Christ. Although we must fight and resist the devil, let us never forget that we engage a defeated foe. Now Jesus achieved the ultimate victory over Satan's sin and death. It's been done. It was accomplished at the cross and resurrection. We can, we can summarize all of the purposes of the devil as opposing God and his plan of redemption and keeping people in blindness. 
And so what was the cross but, but furthering God's grand plan of redemption and leading people out of darkness and into the light, forgiving their sins, restoring them to God, and setting people free to live in the light. The cross and resurrection was the ultimate defeat of Satan and all of his followers. Ephesians 1 says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And then Colossians 2 says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Jesus has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and this is the money part, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But isn't it amazing that, that this incredible victory that Christ achieved for all of his people, it came through Jesus's humility, his mercy, his gentleness, his sacrifice, his giving up of his own life. I mean, the greatest victory in human cosmic history, the thing that all like movies and books are trying to tap into a little bit, is Jesus destroying all of the evil in the world by dying, by laying his life down for people. And what's beautiful is this looked like the moment of great victory for the enemy. All of the schemes of the enemy were to, to minimize Jesus' role and even to kill him. And yet what did God do but use all of the devil's schemes against him? To take the enemy's greatest attack on Jesus and on the kingdom of God and actually reverse it like in this heavenly judo move and completely use it to crush the enemy himself. Just when it looked like the enemy had won and Jesus was put in the grave on the third morning, he rises again in complete victory. Even the most evil plans of the enemy become means of glorious redemption. And so we can't be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, but we also don't have to be afraid at all. The victory has been won. Your debt has been canceled. The enemy is stripped and bound. Christ is risen. This is a terrible illustration that's not in my notes, so I'm not sure if it's going to work, but I was watching the NBA playoffs last night. The Celtics were up big on the Hawks, like 13 up with 20 seconds to go, and the Hawks fouled. You're just like, come on. Just let them run out the clock, you know? You're not going to somehow score that many points in that number of seconds. Just let the clock run out. But there they are, slapping at wrists. That's, that's what this is. This is great, right? The victory has been secured. We don't even need to make the free throws. We probably won't, and that's fine. Jesus has made them for us. Or something. But it's like the enemy is coming in. He's running out of time. He knows he can't win, but he is going to hack your wrists. And that's spiritual warfare. All right, number three, our role in the battle today. Verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I mean, all of these different illustrations, the, the belt of truth, the, the like vest of righteousness, the shield of faith, the, the feet with like the gospel kicks. It's like all of these different aspects are trying to show us that we are in, we are in a defense against real spiritual opposition. And so this passage leads us to, to a few responses that we'll look at. And the first is simply to stand firm. I don't know if you caught that. Stand your ground, and after you have done everything, stand. And in case you missed it, stand firm, he says again. I mean, he doesn't actually call us to fight. I don't think anywhere in the Scriptures are we actually commanded to fight the enemy. And it's because Jesus has already fought on our behalf. James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5 says, resist the enemy standing firm in the faith. All we have to do is just stand there. And it's because Christ has not only secured the victory, but he has also united us to him, which means that his authority over all, all of Satan's dominion, all of these rulers and authorities, his authority now rests with us as well. Remember, anytime we talk about union with Christ, it means everything that's true of Christ is now true of us if we are in him, if we believe in him. All of the riches of Christ's kingdom become ours, and all of the authority that Christ has becomes ours as well. And you might not feel like you have all the authority in the universe, and that's part of the point, it's because it's not your power, but it's Christ's power. But we do have access to the full authority of Christ. Therefore, stand firm. The second thing is similar, to use the resources of the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in the Holy Spirit. Right here in verses 17 and 18 at the end, we get two Holy Spirit references. And he says that the the Word of God is is the sword of the Spirit. It's, It's a weapon by which we we defend ourselves. The more you know of Scripture, the more you can stand firm in battle, the more armor you have in resisting and simply outweighting the enemy. We have these incredible resources and power through the Holy Spirit. It would, be, it would be unwise to do the Christian life without them. Now, often this looks and is, is taught as memorizing Scripture so that we can recite it in a time of trouble, and I, I totally believe that. I, I love that I have enough Scripture in my mind that it'll, it'll come up in those moments. But I also think of it as, as times when the enemy's attacking us, one of the main things he wants us to do is is to get us to question God's love, to to show us that that somebody doesn't care for us and therefore God doesn't care about us, that somebody rejects us and therefore God will reject us. We have the first thought and then the second thought comes in right afterwards that God doesn't care about us, he's not watching over us, he's disappointed with us. And this is where Scripture becomes the incredible resource, the sword of the Spirit. 
Because if we're immersed in, in the teachings of Jesus and, and the Psalms and the New Testament letters, we know what's true and what's not. We can fight back and say, I know the truth of my belovedness in Christ. I know that even where I've sinned, those are covered, and so I don't need to live in the guilt and shame that the enemy wants me to live in. And so fill your mind with Scripture so that you can resist the schemes of the enemy. Here's the third thing, and I've said this a number of times, but do hard things. Like, do hard things that require the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Christian life actually should be really, really hard. If it's not very difficult, you might not be actively engaged enough in the mission of God. I mean, how many people basically make all of their decisions in life based on what's going to be easiest? The career we choose, the place that we live, when to get married or have kids, how, how deep of friendships to build, how we use our money or free time or possessions. All of it's just to keep us as like, comfortable and insulated as possible. But if, but if you play that out, you, you and I both know that that is not a life worth living. I love uh, this quote. Mother Teresa said, choose always the hardest thing. Because almost always the hardest thing is the right thing. The thing that leads in the end, in the long run, to the best result. Whether you're 18 or 38 or 88, live your life in such a way that you require the presence and power of God. And don't do it totally by yourself. No one's meant to just do hard things alone, but do hard things together in community where you can support one another. Live the kind of life that actually requires the presence of other people. All right, then here's the last thing. We'll close with this. You'll be shocked by it. Pray. Pray in the Spirit. Perhaps the day will come when the closing sermon illustration is not prayer at Trinity. Today's not that day. Verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That's a lot of alls. First, he says, pray in the Spirit. We talked about this three weeks ago. Praying in the Spirit is a, is a deep, emotional, engaged type of prayer. It's a prayer that often goes deeper than, than words can even go. So what Paul talks about in Romans 8 is almost like a, a groaning that, that the Spirit takes and, and makes it comprehensible before the Father. Pray in the Spirit, and the Spirit takes these requests, and the Son advocates for you as well. And then he says, pray with all kinds of prayers. Pray with contemplative ones. Pray with laments. Pray with adoration. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray for each other. Pray for yourself. Use all of the different forms of prayer. If, if you're, you're new here, we went through a, a series called Praying the Psalms. It was like 15 weeks or 16 or something. And we just taught through all the different forms of prayer in the Psalms. It's on the website if, if you want to look at it. But we have so many types of prayers that are, that are means for us to connect with God and to pray for ourselves and to pray for other people. Keep on praying, he says. Be alert and keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
This final call is to be alert to the schemes of the enemy and to pray for each other. Stand firm. Pray for each other. Pray for healing. Pray for growth. Pray for encouragement. Pray for comfort. Keep on praying. All of our experiences of spiritual warfare should just drive us back into dependence on the Lord. In Luke 10, there's this moment where Jesus sends out all of his disciples with his authority, and they come back saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. You remember what Jesus says, do not rejoice that the evil spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our joy and our hope, it's first and foremost that Christ has redeemed us. The Father loves us. And our names are are safe. They're untouchable, written in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us to a fight on our own. You have not called us to to fight against the schemes of the enemy, but rather you sent your own son. You gave your, your beloved one even over to death that you might lead us back to yourself. And Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you willingly went and you came and you laid down your life, the shepherd for the sheep, so that we might be restored, that we might be victorious. Holy Spirit, we ask you to to make these things real to us, apply this salvation to us, apply your word to us, lead us deeper into prayer, protect us in the battle that we're in. Lord, I pray for any, any new believers here, those who have just come to faith, for the guys that are getting baptized, that you would protect them and guard them in the faith. For those of us that have been at this for a while, would you strengthen us? Would you comfort and encourage us? Let us not grow weary or become lukewarm. But would you build us up so that we can stand against the schemes of the enemy and support one another as well? Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you're doing in our community. We love you. We trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.